Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you didn't hear, Melton Demiris of CoinShares and Jalak Jopan Putra of Future Perfect Ventures and I are all teaching a crypto workshop at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, from September 20th to 22nd. Plus, there will be yoga, healthy food, and Omega's beautiful 250-acre campus. If the idea of spending a few days in nature, enjoying healthy activities, and talking crypto sounds fun to you, check out the show notes for the link to sign up. Also, Unchained is now on YouTube. You can find the most recent episodes there every week on the Unchained podcast channel. And if you're not yet subscribed to my weekly newsletter, go now to unchainedpodcast.com to sign up. Head to ethereal.summit.com with the discount code LAURA20 to get 20% off tickets to join Laura and hundreds of the brightest minds in blockchain at Ethereal Summit New York, May 10th to 11th at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn. CypherTrace makes it easy for exchanges and crypto businesses to comply with cryptocurrency anti-money laundering laws. Avoid illegal sources of funds and maintain healthy banking relationships. CypherTrace is helping you grow the crypto economy by keeping it safe and secure. My guests today are Jennifer Campbell, co-founder of Tagomi, and Kevin Johnson, COO of Tagomi. Welcome, Jennifer and Kevin. Thanks for having us, Laura. Great to be here. How did you come up with... Well, actually, why don't we start with Jennifer? How did you come up with the idea for Tagomi? So um, before this, I was working at Union Square Ventures, which is a venture capital firm in New York, uh, probably most well known for investing in Twitter very early on, um, but also spent a lot of time in the crypto space. Uh, so they invest in Coinbase in 2012, um, invested in other crypto projects like Filecoin and Algorand and Blockstack, to name a few. And so I spent most of my time there looking at the space. And um, I guess over time, I, be- I became the go-to person when you know someone wants to say, well, someone wants to buy, you know, let's say a million dollars of Bitcoin, um, I'd be the go-to person. Uh, they'd ask, like, you know, so how do I buy a million dollars of Bitcoin? And you know, I'd send some to some of the exchanges, sometimes the OTC desks, uh, some sometimes to other folks um, that I knew in my network. Um, but there really wasn't a great solution for folks who were buying in size, um, and a lot of them, because they were more sophisticated investors, had you know really expected uh, something a little bit better. Um, you know, they wanted best execution, they wanted to understand how their trades were routed. All all of which didn't really exist in this space. And so my co-founder, Greg, previously was head of electronic trading at Goldman, um, and he was a partner there for 10 years. And uh, we spent a lot of time together looking at the space and thought, you know, there really could be a better solution here. And so uh, we decided to start Tagomi. And you mentioned this phrase, best execution. I know that has like a very particular meaning. So can you describe what that is? Yeah, so we think of best execution as, you know, the ability to survey liquidity across many different markets um, in order to find, you know, if you're buying Bitcoin, the lowest price possible. And that means you're usually having, you know, fast electronic access to those markets. 
uh, and having your you know capital and ability to to fund those accounts ready to go in advance. So it's essentially like a way to give people a bird's eye view so that way they can get the best price possible, which is especially important when you are deploying a million dollars in these markets, which are pretty small. Is that the thinking there? Yeah, that's that's definitely right. You know, it, in traditional markets, you know, best execution is is really important. It's something that institutions care a lot about. They spend a lot of time sort of, you know, after trades are done analyzing, did I get the best price possible? They'll look at, you know, market data, uh, you know, they'll compare trades over time. It's really a process and it's uh you know, it's 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 uh, something that a lot of major institutions really focus on in in crypto. You know, we sort of have a very young market, but we do think that as larger institutions move into the space, they're going to have the same questions, the same concerns. They're going to want to understand, you know, how did their broker route their trade? Did they get the best price? Was there information leakage? Was there some kind of adverse impact? Um, so we're going to apply those same kinds of principles that we learned from traditional markets to the crypto space. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell us what does Tagomi do? Yeah, so we uh, we have a couple different things that we do. Um, you know, first and foremost, we have built a, a smart order router, as it's called, which essentially allows us to monitor market data coming from all the different exchanges or market makers that we connect to, to understand you know what are the prices that are available on those venues, and then when we get an order from a client, let's say to buy you know a large amount of Bitcoin, we'll take a look at all those different order books and say what's the right way to break up this order into smaller pieces. And send orders to each of the markets to get, you know, sort of a piece of the best price Bitcoin on each exchange. And what that means is then sort of the weighted average price of all that Bitcoin that we'll buy will be the lowest possible for that client. You know, it's much better than if you were to just go to one exchange at one time, because if you were to eat up all that liquidity in one place, you'd end up paying a higher average price. So it's really important that you have access to lots of markets, you route your orders simultaneously to all the venues, and you get the best prices uh, across the entire street. Then the other thing that's important is you know, after the trade, kind of going back and analyzing that, you know, seeing, okay, did I do the right thing? Doing post-trade reporting, being able to explain uh, the analysis to your client, which, which is really, you know, we think it's critical. Uh, it's something we do as an agency brokerage, and we want to be very transparent with, you know, why we did what we did. And Jennifer, you did describe this very briefly, but can you describe more in full how it was that prior to Tagomi or without Tagomi, how people do things like make very large purchases of Bitcoin? Sure. So before Tagomi, there were really two main options. One, you could go to one of the retail exchanges. And so for a lot of these larger clients who are buying in size, um, there's a large liquidity cost to buying in size. So that means that um, while um, it, you know, if the price of Bitcoin is $1,000. Um, if you want to buy 10 or or $100 of Bitcoin, it's still $1,000. But if you want to buy, say, 500000 or a million dollars of Bitcoin, the price is actually, you know, maybe $1,200 or something like that. And so the price gets higher as your order size goes up. Um, and so how you execute that trade uh, really matters. Um, if you buy Bitcoin and the liquidity cost is, you know, uh, 5%, well, that means you have to believe that, you know, Bitcoin goes, you know, up 5% before uh, you actually want to get into the market. Um, so that execution cost is really important for some of these more institutional clients. 
So, you know, that wasn't a great solution just because the space was so fragmented. You'd have to go to, you know, five or 10 different exchanges. You'd have to sign up and get selfies at each of these 10 exchanges. You know, and an institutional client is just isn't going to do that. Or, you know, even for the average person, that's a lot of operational work, a lot of hassle uh, to get all those accounts and trade all across all of these exchanges. And the selfie is for the know your customer procedures? That's right. Know your customer, KYC, AML, um, anti-money laundering. Um, and so it was just a lot of operational work uh, just to get a trade done. The other option was to go to these OTC desks, uh, which you know sometimes is a great solution. Uh, but also, a lot of these clients are looking for best execution. Uh, so they um, want to understand how your trade was executed, how it was routed, like why did they get the price they got? And you don't really get that with an OTC uh, because um, you're... Uh, you know, it's not, they're not an agent. Um, you're, you know, you're buying from their balance sheet. Um, and so they have a set price. Uh, there's a bit, you know, sometimes there can be a pretty big spread there. And so some clients, you know, are looking for a different solution. And with Tagomi, how does a large purchase of crypto work? So it would feel like, um, you know, you would wire a million dollars to Tagomi. Uh, you only have one counterparty, which is Tagomi. But we would smart route that across all the different exchanges and liquidity pools and market makers and other liquidity sources for you. You don't have to have accounts or uh, have money on any of these uh, um, liquidity pools. Um, and then we smart route that. And then you'll have your Bitcoin in your account at the end of the day. Um, and it would really feel like you're interacting with just one counterparty, except we're writing across all the different exchanges for you. So, you know, one analogy I use um, that's quite simple is, you know, imagine that, uh, you know, say Kraken or Coinbase or Bitstamp is Delta or United, um, but, you know, we're Expedia or uh you know, kayak or something like that. And so, it, you know, you just have, you can go to Expedia and buy, you know, coins from, you know, Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini. But, you know, there's just one place you can go to get all of those uh, exchanges in one place. Who are your clients or what types of clients do you have? So it's a pretty broad range. Um, to date, uh, we launched in December. Um, and so it, we've mostly been focused on more of the institutional clients. Uh, our clients have been hedge funds, RIAs, other broker dealers who want to sell Bitcoin to their clients. Um, but there's also, you know, a lot of high worth, high net worth individuals and also clients who just want to use Togami because they feel like it's a better experience um, and they're not really an institution. So, you know, um, we're going to be expanding to um, more people. Um, but in the first couple months, we've only been taking the really large institutions. And so, and most of them are from traditional finance, or are they larger players in the crypto world? I'd say it's a mix. Uh, I'd say half, you know, a lot of crypto funds, and then half, you know, more RIAs, other traditional broker dealers um, who want to offer client coins to their own clients. What is their typical trade size? You know, it varies a lot. Um, it's hard to say what a trade size uh, typically is because every time they trade, it's broken up into a really small, tiny trade. Um, so if you want to do a, let's say, $30 million trade, you're not going to do that all at once. Um, you know, you're going to break that up into bits, little bits of, you know, maybe 30 cents or a dollar each and then spread that out across all the different um exchanges. And so, you know, it's hard to say, was that, you know, was that a $30 million trade? Was that a 10 cents trade? Uh, because a lot of our algos uh, will split up your trade into much smaller trades. So, um, but I'd say, you know, 
between 25K to in the tens of millions, uh, we've seen a pretty broad range. How much do you, or uh, well, yeah, how much do you make off of each trade and how do you make the money off of each trade? So we just take a flat commission on top of each trade. Um, and there's no um, monthly cost to the software. There's no yearly fee or anything like that. It's just a flat commission on top of your trade. Oh, and it's not, it's not, there's no like scale based on volume or anything like that? Oh, there is. Yeah. So it ranges from, you know, up to 25 bips, depending on your volume. And which exchanges do you connect with? We connect with all the exchanges that have USD. Uh, so, uh, you know, the top 10 there, and then also market makers and other liquidity sources as well. So I know, I don't know if you saw that long Bitwise report about a kind of real versus um, <laughs> fake volumes on the exchanges, but has that influenced which exchanges you decided have decided to integrate with? Um, so it hasn't influenced us at all, um, but it's actually been very helpful. Um, so, you know, previously when a lot of times, you know, clients would log into our platform and then I'd show them, you know, the volume for the day. And when they saw that metric, they'd be really surprised and say, what do you mean that's the, that's the real volume? And, you know, you know, CoinMarketCap has something that says, you know, 20x the volume. Um, and we'd have to explain, no, that we, you know, we, we curate all our own data and we think that's the actual volume you can actually inter interact with and um, actually execute on. And they'd be very surprised. And so, you know, that's been really helpful for us um, to, you know, in explaining, um, you know, why that number is so much lower. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So you had... Yeah, I was going to ask you like how you decide which exchanges to integrate with, but it looks like you were using your own data to make those decisions about kind of where there was enough liquidity and stuff like that. Is that how you did that? That's right. So when we looked at where the liquidity was, we ended up with a very similar set of exchanges. Um, but, you know, it was a little bit hard to explain to clients why that number was so much lower than, you know, what they thought it was because everyone had gone to, you know, Coin Market Cap and, and seen, oh, the, you know, number is in the billions or, um, and then, you know, the number we actually had was, you know, a fraction of that. And so it's been really helpful for us. <laughs> yeah. Looking at that report just, the visuals on it were just so clear. And um, yeah, I was just, just looking at it, I was like, okay, this is like one of those cases where a picture is definitely worth a thousand words. Um, so you guys also custody your customers' funds, yes? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so which custodians do you work with? Yeah, so we we evaluated probably two dozen different uh, custody providers when we were building out our process. Um, we ended up focusing on the ones that we thought had you know, really great security, really great features, uh, and, and for the most part have you know, some kind of trust license. So you know, we work with places like you know, uh, Coinbase and BitGo and Gemini, um, and we're always interested in seeing you know, what other new technologies are out there um, as we expand the coins that we list, as we look to add features like staking or, or other things to our system. So um, you know, as an agent, we're, we're very happy to you know, keep monitoring the market for, for what's best for our clients. And uh, we'll, we'll always make sure we, we get the, the best technology, the best security and the best features for, uh, for our clients. Do you spread out the customer's funds across multiple custodians, meaning that um, even one single uh, entity's funds will be spread out? Like why, why do you use multiple custodians? Yeah, that's a great question. So we generally do uh, spread it out, you know, for for risk purposes, not keeping all the eggs in one basket. 
Um, and then the reason, other reasons for using multiple are, you know, different custodians have different coins that they list. They have different features in terms of, you know, do they offer staking? What's their service level agreement for how fast a withdrawal can happen? What type of storage is it? So we think it's prudent just to be able to have multiple and to be able to uh, offer diff- all those different features to our clients. Do your clients have any concerns about the fact that they don't hold their own private keys? Yeah, it's definitely some of them. Uh, you know, if you're different, a different kind of fund, uh, sometimes it's important. But you know, Tagomi is able to accommodate many different structures, so we're more than happy to use our cold vault solution. Or you know, if somebody has their own custodian they've already worked with, we can always whitelist a withdrawal address, and after the execution is done, we can always send it to their to their own storage system of their choice. We're happy to work with the clients to figure out what's best for them, and uh, if that's what they need, then that's what we'll do. Oh, okay, so it sounds pretty flexible on that part. It's like the coast, like you can custody for them if they want that. And then if they don't, then they don't have to use that service. Yeah, that's right. We're trying to mimic what you would feel in a traditional brokerage in equities or futures, right? If you call up your, your broker and say, I want to buy a million dollars of Apple stock, you know, they don't, uh, they don't send you a box in the mail with a bunch of stock certificates at the end of the week. You know, they, they hold on to that for you. Uh, you know, so we, we're, we're trying to get more people into the industry by providing the same types of products and services that they're used to having uh, in traditional products. And that means, you know, like Jennifer said, not having to connect to all the exchanges, not having to worry about how to s- smart order route, and then custody and treasury management is another uh, facet of that. They, you know, they don't need to worry about where their stocks are held. They don't need to worry about moving money around. Uh, so Tagomi has figured out ways to handle that uh, in the crypto space. For example, if you have a prime broker relationship with Goldman Sachs, you don't also need an account with at the BATS exchange or the NICE, right? Um, and so um, that's the same with Tagomi. Uh, we follow similar workflows as you know if you would if you were to have a prime broker relationship in traditional equity markets. And how do you make that possible on the back end? Really, it's a combination of you know strong technology that was built you know with experience that we have from traditional markets. It's both a combination of being able to quickly route orders to the right markets where the best prices are, and then you know building out the sort of settlement and clearing infrastructure that allows us to handle moving capital between exchanges, you know, pulling back the you know the Bitcoin that we buy for clients into our own storage system, our own wallets, uh, and sort of managing managing that balance throughout the day. Um, so we've built systems that allow us to do this quickly and efficiently, efficiently, and that's really what I think differentiates us from you know, some of the other software providers that are out there. So we have a veteran team who's built this multiple times before as a team in multiple markets. And so, you know, it's really textbook solutions that, you know, clients expect. And, um, you know, we think the crypto space will adopt. It seems like you have to have accounts on all these exchanges and then you must pre-fund at least some of these trades. Is that correct? Yeah, it's actually a mix. So, you know, we, the crypto market is evolving and it's changing all the time. So we, we have to meet the market where it is, which means that a lot of the major sources of liquidity require pre-funding for trading. Uh, so if an exchange requires that, we work with that. But there are also counterparties out there that will have post-trade settlement arrangements. So we have uh, some liquidity sources that do that as well. So Tagomi figures all this out for the clients while we provide best execution. Um, and so really, you know, managing that uh, that liquidity and that access that we have is is really the main service we provide to clients. That's really where the the secret sauce is, I would say. And for the cases where you do have to keep funds on exchanges, 
As we all know, the history of crypto is littered with exchanges being hacked and customers losing their coins. So how do you keep the funds that you have on exchanges secure? Yeah, it's a great question. It, you know, it starts off with a rigorous review of which exchanges we connect to, making sure that you know their security and KYC systems make sense. Um, and then we make a risk-based assessment. You know, we say, okay, what what's the right balance of you know our liquidity desires and and our desire to you know minimize counterparty risk wherever possible. Um, you know, there's really there's really no perfectly safe way to do this. Um, you know, I think when you're trading on a centralized crypto exchange, there. Uh, there is that temporary risk that you take when your funds are there. But again, we try to minimize that up front. Uh, we make sure we don't have uh, too much uh, in any one place at any given time. And, you know, that's that's what one of the main services that Tagomi provides for our clients is, you know, constantly keeping an eye on that, constantly making sure we're minimizing risk while still trying to get the best execution possible. And I believe so far you've raised $27.5 million. Is some of that used as working capital to pre-fund those trades, or do you have another source of liquidity? So we don't have additional liquidity apart from that. You know, it's mostly the clients' funds that we're using. Um, you know, we have other financing arrangements where we can, you know, provide additional backstops into that. So really, it's a matter of sort of balancing all that liquidity at the same time. Uh, but client funds are always, you know, fully funded. There's a full reserve there. And we're never in a situation where we don't have access to all the clients' funds that uh, that they have with us. And which cryptocurrencies do you support? We have Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash, um, but we'll be adding quite a few number, more number of coins in the next couple months, so stay tuned. And how do you decide which ones to add? Yeah, so there's a couple of factors we look at. You know, client demand is obviously uh, important. Um, and then we take a look at, you know, our, our ability to technically trade each coin, what exchanges is it listed on. Um, and then it's also, you know, taking a look at the regulatory requirements and all the jurisdictions that we have clients, you know, so it might be different state by state, for example, in the U S or country by country around the world. Um, so we'll always, you know, work with our legal team to, to assess how that works. You know, for example, in the U S the big question is, is it a security or not in other jurisdictions? It might be a little bit different. So we look at all, all three of those factors when we decide what to list. Oh, wow. So in the U S it could differ from state to state, which assets I'm just trying to think, like, what's an example of of an instance where um, customers of one state might be able to trade a crypto asset, but customers of another state wouldn't? Yeah, it really comes down to things like money transmitter licenses. So different states um, have different rules and regulations around that. Where you know we, we've got licenses in many different states. You know, certainly the biggest ones in the U.S., but places like New York have additional requirements uh, for cryptocurrencies, for example. Um, so we we did uh, recently get our Bit license in New York, which allows us to take New York clients. Uh, but generally, the process for approving new assets there takes a little bit more time. And you'll see this with other exchanges too. If you look at you know Coinbase, you'll see that some assets are able to trade in California, but not New York, for example. So that's it's pretty normal. Uh, but again, we're, we're always you know keeping an eye on what's available, and uh, we're always making sure our clients know what they can do in their jurisdictions. And over the longer term, let's say that digitized securities really become a thing. Do you see Tagomi adding assets like those? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we've been proactive there, you know, talking to the SEC and FINRA, uh, figuring out what does it mean to be a, a sort of a registered broker dealer in the crypto space. Um, a lot of us, you know, have our licenses from previous jobs and understand how to set up those types of institutions. And uh, so we're working very closely with the regulators and other other partners in the space, other you know exchanges, uh, you know different companies that are working on listing tokens and working with issuers, other ATSs, 
uh, custodians. Um, so all these things are necessary to really bring security tokens uh, to our clients. And we're, like I said, we're, we think we're at the forefront of that, making sure as soon as that's, those approvals start coming through from the SEC, we'll be ready to add those to the platform. Luckily, a lot of the technology we've already built is the same to support those things. It's, it's really a matter of uh, getting uh, the right licenses and regulations in place. Yeah, I feel like that's the refrain I'm hearing from a lot of a lot of these startups right now. And what kind of trading volume are you seeing? So it's been increasing all the time. Um, you know, depending on client demand on any given day. Uh, like Jen said, we have a lot of different styles of clients. Uh, you know, different needs. Uh, but it's definitely been growing uh, since we launched in December. As we saw in 2013, and then again in 2017. When there's a crypto bull run, it happens at a breathtaking pace. So how does Chigomi plan to accommodate these sometimes unpredictable run-up events? Yeah, so really the, the key there is to be to be ready to make sure we're onboarding clients now as the you know, sort of the crypto winter is thawing, getting their accounts ready, getting uh, getting uh, all the exchanges connected so that when clients are ready, um, you know, they're ready to quickly, you know, deposit money or coin and, and trade with us. And then pretty much everything after that is electronic. You know, we have an automated system for trading. There's not a lot of human intervention that's needed to, to, uh, to trade once the funding is, is, is completed. So we think we'll be ready for that uh, as soon as it comes. And about that pre-funding question that I asked earlier about having the money ready at exchanges, is that something that would affect your ability to scale? Or in that case, would you just require that the the client wire their funds first? Yeah, generally our requirement is that the client just funds with us. The process for moving to exchanges is fairly quick. Uh, we're working with a lot of partners in that space, both on the banking and on the, on the wallet side. Uh, technology is always getting better there. So uh, we think we have a pretty good setup now and it'll keep improving over time. All right, we're going to discuss the bit license and other trends in crypto after the space, but after the break. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Did you know that if money laundering were an economy, its GDP would be the size of Canada's? Large volumes of tainted crypto assets move through financial networks, often below the radar of banks. Cybercriminals use unregulated crypto exchanges to avoid detection. No wonder governments around the world are rolling out tough new anti-money laundering laws for cryptocurrencies. Complying with those laws isn't easy. Banks and exchanges need the best cryptocurrency intelligence available to avoid penalties. Now you can use the same powerful AML and compliance monitoring tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. To learn more, visit cyphertrace.com unchained. Ethereal Summit returns to New York City this May 10th to 11th to kick off Blockchain Week and offer you a chance to go deep into the heart of crypto, blockchain, and Ethereum. Ethereal Summit is where you can get up close with the builders of blockchain and Ethereum, including many guests from Laura's podcast, like Amber Balde, Tushar Jain, Amin Soleimani, Chris Berniski, and Mike Novogratz. Head to etherealsummit.com with the discount code LAURA20 to get 20% off tickets to join Laura and hundreds of the brightest minds in blockchain at Ethereal Summit New York, May 10th and 11th at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn. Back to my conversation with Jennifer Campbell and Kevin Johnson of Tagomi. Let's just make sure people understand where Tagomi sits in the market compared to some other similar players. Can you explain how you're differentiated from the OTC desks and other types of software that facilitate trading on crypto exchanges, market makers, et cetera? 
Sure. So I think there's three main buckets. Uh, one, like you said, are the software only solutions. Um, so what that means is that, you know, first of all, you have to have your own accounts at each of these, let's say, 10 exchanges. And then you have to send a wire into each of these 10 exchanges and split your balance sheet up between each of those 10. Um, and then it'll show you where the good trades are. And, you know, you can buy and sell in, in, in one aggregated interface. Uh, but then to, you know, collect your coin at the end of the day, you then have to log back into each of the accounts um, and then send them back to your own wallet. And so there's a lot of operational hassle there that is just really not familiar to some of these more sophisticated investors. Um, but, you know, even if you're just the average clients, um, you know, it's a lot of work. I think the second category is, like you said, the OTC desks. And, um, you know, there's sort of a place in time for some of these OTC desks. Um, you know, if you want to offload a lot of risk instantly, the OTC desks will do that for you. But for a lot of these larger clients, say, if they're trying to buy, let's say, you know, $200 million of Bitcoin over the course of a year, well, you know, they really need an algorithm to do that for them, you know, over um, a period of time. And so, the OTC desks aren't, aren't a great place there. Um, and also for clients who want best execution, um, you know, essentially that means best price. You can think about it that way. Um, but, you know, they need a different solution to show exactly how we executed their trades, um, why we did what we did. Um, and they need a lot more detail around, you know, why was that price, um, the true market price uh, that you showed me. So I'd say those are the two broad categories. And you guys, you're not making markets either, like you're not trading or anything like that. It's just all for clients. We're not making markets, exactly. And so there are there are also some desks that are agency only. Uh, but what that means really is that you have to pre-fund your trades, but they only actually route you to market makers. Um, there isn't another uh, product in the space that will actually smart route you to multiple liquidity pools and, uh, you know, aren't also market making against you uh, as well. So we have mentioned the bit license. I kind of was pretty impressed because you guys were recently approved for one. But as far as I understand, it, I think it took quite a bit longer for some of the older companies in the space to receive theirs. Do you have any sense of why yours was approved so quickly or, or maybe you started applying before you launched or... What, what was no, the actually, we um, we applied in the late summer, around August. Um, well, we just have a team that you know has really gone through a lot of these applications before. They're really familiar with all the processes, you know, the security requirements, um, you know, all the operational procedures, and so we just you know sort of had everything lined up. Um, you know, the team was just sort of really familiar with all the background checks, um, et cetera, and so it was a um, well understood process for for our team. And because we did talk about how the bit license in particular is one example of a reason why the offerings from state to state would differ, and I know you're probably not going to want to answer this directly, but <laughs> I'm just curious to know, like from a startup's perspective, what you think the bit license is adding or, or not adding to the experience of being an entrepreneur in the space? Well, I think it adds protections for, you know, New York clients to ensure that, you know, any company they interact with who has a bit license has really thought about every uh, single potential edge case and nuance and, you know, you know, it's a product they can really trust. And so I think, you know, that definitely adds some value to the, you know, to the space. But do you find it like particularly onerous? I, I mean, you guys are 
a pretty young startup and yes, you, you have good funding, but I'm just, I just wonder what that experience is like for entrepreneurs who have to, especially in this case where you're trying to service traditional financial players who, you know, definitely will want to be compliant. Right. I do think, you know, it can be an expensive process. And, you know, that's part of the reason we raised 15 million in our very first round. Um, And, you know, just because we wanted to get all those licenses, it was uh, part of our business plan. So. And so earlier, Kevin said that having the bit license enables you to service New York customers. Is there, are there any other things that enables you to do that you couldn't do without it? The main two things would be taking New York clients and then operating out of New York. Um, you know, so we, uh, so we are able to have a presence there, able to take clients from there, um, which is obviously important when we're servicing traditional institutions. You know, the New York city is the financial capital of America for sure. And, you know, our goal is to not only service, you know, crypto native firms, but also traditional asset managers and really try to make cryptocurrencies a, an asset class for, for all types of investors. Jennifer did reference Greg uh, Tussar's background a little bit earlier, and obviously she spoke about hers. But, you know, when I think of teams in the crypto space, I really do feel like this is one of the area. they're one of the teams where I can look and say, oh, wow, it's very clear how their background has led them here. So can you just give a, an overview of the experience of some of the other people on your team? And maybe, Kevin, you could just lead with describing your own background. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've been involved in trading whether it's electronic or quantitative for my whole career. I've worked at places like Citadel, Two Sigma, and then Getco and KCG. That's actually where I met Greg. Um, so always been working with, you know, how do we make trading efficient and more quantitative and electronic uh, as, as the industry has changed. Um, and then I got into cryptocurrencies really as a hobby. Um, you know, I was uh, mining Ethereum in my basement for a while and doing a lot of trading on the side. And so when I had an opportunity to work with Greg again and kind of take my my finance knowledge and apply it to my hobby. Uh, it was something I couldn't pass up. And, and you'll find a lot of the people on our team have similar backgrounds. They've worked at, you know, places like, uh, you know, Citadel or Two Sigma or KCG in the past. Uh, and they, they understand, you know, how electronic markets, you know, improve experiences for clients. Um, and then they understand that, you know, cryptocurrencies are, you know, can certainly benefit from more efficient markets and better pricing for clients. So given your background, how would you say the financial infrastructure of the crypto space compares to that of traditional finance, at least for now? Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's pretty different, um, but there are some similarities. And you know, a lot of the solutions we have from traditional finance need to be applied to, to crypto. Certainly, uh, you know, taking a look at best execution and smart order routing and you know, ensuring we get the best prices for clients is you know, something you know, we know how to do and we're trying to apply to the crypto markets. Where it differs is, you know, in a lot of the operational aspects that we talked about earlier. You know, how do you handle exchanges that require pre-funding? How do you store assets for clients after you ha- you have them? How do you you figure out cold storage versus hot storage? Um, you know, the uh, also uh, figuring out what can you trade in different jurisdictions? What is a commodity? What's a security? You know, those are what make it different. But I think over time we're going to take all of those learnings from traditional finance and continue to apply them to crypto. Uh, in order to make sure that this can be an institutional asset class. And how would you compare the early days of electronic trading and traditional finance to the early days of electronic trading now in crypto? Yeah, it's actually probably pretty similar. So, you know, as the equity markets grew up, you know, you have floor traders yelling at each other across a room. 
Um, you start to have more dealers come into the space, providing additional liquidity. Things eventually happen more over the phone and then eventually on, on screens on electronic platforms. Um, and, you know, as you got you know, farther into the 90s and 2000s, you know, the rise of electronic market makers who, you know, really uh, ended up being the dominant liquidity providers and kind of took over for a lot of the dealers in most cases. You know, certainly even in mature financial markets, there's a room for both, you know, liquid, uh, you know, efficient electronic market makers as well as dealers. What you tend to find are that the dealers focus on, you know, lower volume, lower liquidity, uh, harder to source assets. And then if you're looking for something that's really liquid and highly traded, like if you want to buy, you know, Apple or Facebook stock, you're, you're going to go to an exchange, you're going to go through a broker that's electronic, you're going to use an algo, and you're going to end up interacting with a, a high frequency electronic market maker. That's the most efficient way to buy liquid instruments. And what we've seen is that over the last couple of years, crypto, uh, certain crypto assets are moving into that category, right? Certainly Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the other more liquid assets are traded on plenty of exchanges. There are, are now electronic market makers quoting in those venues. And so it makes sense then to take the same process of you know, building an electronic smart order router to source all that liquidity for clients. So this might be a stupid question, but just listening to you talk, I just realized, I'm not sure if I understand the difference between an electronic market maker versus a bot, which I don't know if you saw, there was like this paper that came out last week that was talking about bots on exchanges, front running, uh, sorry, on uh, DEXs, front running people. But I just realized I'm not really sure what the difference is. Yeah, definitely. So I think the way to think about it is you have to understand what what's the reason for the trading. Um, you know, if, if the person's, whoever writes the bot, if their primary focus is providing liquidity, if they're constantly providing two-sided markets on exchanges um, in order to capture spread, you know, that's what a market maker is. And that's what a lot of the, you know, either traditional finance or now crypto uh, high frequency market makers are doing. Uh, they're trying to be flat, they're trying to collect spread, and they're trying to provide, you know, a great tight market and liquidity to natural customers. Uh, trading bots can mean a lot of things. Bots can be market makers, but bots can also be, you know, what you'd call removing liquidity. They can be making a bet on a direction of an investment. So, you know, they might look at a momentum or, or a reversion signal, or, you know, they might be scraping Twitter feeds for sentiment. You know, they're actually going to make a bet. Um, so bots can both provide liquidity as well as take liquidity. Um, it just, you know, sort of depends on what their, uh, what their ultimate investment strategy is. Oh, I see. So it's more like of an umbrella term and then electronic maker, uh, that can be one category of bot. Yeah, that's right. People trade for different reasons. Some people trade because they want to invest. Some people trade because they want to speculate. And some people trade because they're providing liquidity. Uh, so trading is trading, but you know, it all comes down to what's your model? What's your alpha? What's your, uh, you know, what's your style of interacting with the market? All right. So something else that I was curious to ask you guys is a lot of people say that crypto is about democratizing access to finance. So why do you think it's important to also recreate some aspects of traditional finance in these markets? Yeah, it, I definitely agree with, you know, crypto's goal of, you know, decentralizing different institutions that have, you know, rent-seeking middlemen. At the same time, um, you know, it's really important to realize that anything that touches our, our monetary system needs to have, you know, rules and regulations and go through different types of controls. You know, so in, in different jurisdictions, especially in the U.S., obviously regulators, you know, want to protect investors. There's, you know, lots of uh, rules around how to trade equities. You know, you need to be a broker dealer to trade directly on exchanges. There's lots of great, you know, rules that help protect end users to make sure they get best execution. And, you know, we've seen a lot of those play out over the years. Um, 
you know, I think eventually crypto will be subject to the same kinds of things, you know, making sure that markets aren't manipulated, making sure that, you know, retail customers especially ultimately get the best prices possible. And that's really just to protect the client. So we should, we should expect that regulators always, uh, you know, are trying to, uh, are trying to make sure that people don't, don't get ripped off, aren't exposed to fraud or manipulation. And would software like yours, so obviously we can see that it's making markets more efficient for kind of the bigger players, but is it then also having a similar effect for everyday people that are just buying, you know, like 10, not, well, not even 10, but, um, five Bitcoins or something? Yeah, absolutely. So a good example of that is, you know, in a really efficient market, uh, no matter what exchange you go to, the price will generally be the same, right? So when you want to buy Apple stock from your E-Trade account, you're going to get a very similar price for a small order, whether it gets routed to the NYSE or to the NASDAQ or to a wholesaler. Uh, and so you, you kind of count on that as a retail investor. You don't, you don't want to think about which exchange am I trading on. In crypto right now, the current state of the market is that it's very fragmented. And the reality is because uh, not everybody has access to all the markets because there's not a lot of uh, you know smart order routing going on from an institutional standpoint. There's plenty of price discrepancy now. You know, in, in addition to the bots that are trading and making markets, there are also bots conducting arbitrage, which actually do provide a good service in the market. They help make sure that those price differentials disappear over time as there's more liquidity and more access to the markets. Um, so that's that's ultimately what's going to help make sure that retail clients, when they go, you know, to buy on Coinbase, that it's the same price they would have got if they would have bought on Gemini or on Bitstamp. Um, so that's actually sort of a natural progression of the market, bringing in institutional clients, having electronic market makers, having people conducting arbitrage, ultimately all of those things in an ecosystem make it so that when a retail client shows up at any one exchange, they actually get, you know, what would be the best price for a small order. Ultimately, I see Tagomi as a bridge between the centralized and decentralized worlds. So, you know, back to your earlier question, you know, once you get into the centralized world, you know, going from Bitcoin to some other application, you know, that's very easy for everything to be decentralized. But to bridge the centralized and decentralized worlds, you know, there necessarily has to be some centralized solutions. And so I think that's okay. Um, You know, it's just the bridge. Um, And so, you know, that's what I'd say. Yeah, it's sort of like, Coinbase being the bridge, yes, it's centralized, but <laughs> how are you going to get people's money into this space if you don't have something like Coinbase? Right. So, <laughs> so both of you obviously have been watching these markets for a long time. I'm curious to know what trends you've noticed in the way crypto trades over the years. Like, you know, what were the markets like at first and how are they now? And like, or, or you know, obviously because we had that, that big bull run in 2017 also, you know, what was that period like? Like, you know, if you were to make, uh, you know, observations about the trends in the trading of crypto, what would those be? Well, I think the biggest change is the shift in uh, market structure, right? So when you started off, you had, you know, people calling on the phone or Skyping to buy and sell. Um, and now you have a lot more of the traditional market makers in the space who are making spreads, you know, really bringing spreads down. It's really narrowing. You know, there's a lot more um, electronification of a lot of the markets and um, it's less dealer, much more less dealer oriented than it used to be. Um, that's really shifting. Um, and so I think at least in terms of market sh- structure shift, that's uh, I think that's the biggest difference for me. Kevin, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. You know, we've seen, you know, the market kind of take off in 2017 as people were rushing to buy into ICOs. You know, a lot of that was very sort of retail driven. 
I think it's actually a good thing that the markets come back down to earth a little bit. You know, I think what we're seeing is, you know, higher quality projects surviving. And then as more investors get access to the market, you know, through either, you know, commodities that are, you know, efficiently traded on markets or, you know, security tokens that are properly registered and are able to be traded through brokers, you know, that's going to bring more investment in the space. And then, you know, cryptocurrencies ultimately will be, you know, not only a utility in and of themselves, but also a platform for, for other digital assets. Um, so I've, I've seen that change over the last couple of years, and I'm excited for this next phase of growth. And as you see more professionalization come to the crypto space, do you have any predictions about how that's going to affect the players who have so far succeeded in crypto? I think the people that have been successful through the the bull and the bear market, you know, will continue to provide important services. I think, you know, we'll, we'll all continue to grow as the market changes. You know, I think, you know, all the, ex- all the major exchanges are continuing to upgrade technology and provide new great services for their clients. Uh, firms like Tagomi are now providing the additional services that institutions really will require to access the market. So, you know, we, we partner with a lot of people to make sure that the industry keeps evolving and improving uh, so that it can be a, you know, an asset class that uh, institutions can get into. And I'm just out of curiosity, do you see a place for OTC desks in the future? Always, for sure. You know, like Jen said, there's different styles of trading and different needs from a client. If you if you have a large trade and you want a risk price, an OTC desk makes a lot of sense. Um, also for less liquid assets, um, you know, that might not trade on many exchanges, you know, that they might be a great destination there. You know, I think you know, Tagomi will focus on the liquid products that are traded electronically on exchanges. Um, and as more uh, assets become more liquid and with more volume, we'll, we'll continue to add support for those assets on Tagomi. So I know you guys haven't been live for very long, but I was just curious for a while now, there's been, been this notion that institutional money is sitting on the sidelines, but that a wall of institutional money is coming in. And I, I can't help but laugh because I think I've been hearing these phrases since like 2017, although maybe a little bit less so now a days uh, for good reason, probably. So, you know, just out of curiosity, like even in the short time you've been uh, live, would you say that the the types of financial institutions and traders that are interested in your product, are they changing at all? I think we need to broaden the term institution a little bit. Um, And so I think in mainstream media, when we talk about institutions, immediately everyone thinks about the bulge bracket banks like Goldman or Barclays or um, another bank like that. And for those folks, I think it's going to take some time for them to enter the space. Um, you know, um, we're doing having a lot of conversations with folks like that, um, but it feels like a much longer education process. There are a lot of other folks who are also, I would say, institutions, but they're much more nimble and agile. Um, so, for example, you know, bigger hedge funds, RIAs, um, other broker-dealers who trade quite a bit on our platform, and I'd say sort of they're the largest category, really, um, who don't have all the requirements that these larger bulge bracket banks have um, and who are in the space already. Kevin, were you going to add something? I was just going to say that everybody's waiting for Tagomi. Um, you know, I think we're... <laughs> We, uh, you know, we look like that broker that you're used to working with in different asset classes. Um, you know, we certainly have had a couple clients obviously come from, from the crypto background already, but there are some people that have never traded crypto before that come to Tagomi and say, you know, now I can, now I can finally do this in a familiar way. You handle trading, best execution and custody for me. 
So yeah, I definitely agree with Jennifer though that you know a lot of the traditional service providers in the space will you know are looking at crypto. They're they're interested in it. They're studying it. Um, but the more nimble players, you know, some forward-thinking VCs and endowments uh, and hedge funds are, are definitely getting into the space. Yeah, exactly. So our first client actually was a very traditional RIA who had never before been in the space. And, you know, what they said was, you know, I've been waiting a long time for a solution that uh, was, you know, compatible with, you know, all the requirements I have. Um, And so, you know, he did his first Bitcoin trade ever. And so that was very exciting for sure. Kevin referenced this earlier briefly, but one of the trends that's starting to pick up to pick up in the crypto space is staking. Although none of the assets you offer now are currently staking coins, Ethereum is actually working toward becoming a proof of stake coin. Is that something that your clientele has an interest in? And if so, do you plan to offer them some way to stake their assets? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's something that's definitely a requirement, you know, for Ethereum when it's available and for a lot of the other assets that we're looking at. Um, you know, the same way you want to get, you know, interest on your cash deposits at your bank. You know, you need to make sure that your your assets that have you know some kind of additional feature are working for you, whether that means staking uh, or even things like even for a coin like Bitcoin, being able to lend out your coin in order to get additional interest. These are all features that our clients definitely want, and we're working on ways that we can provide those services to our clients by working with different lenders, different custodians, different technology providers. Uh, this is definitely going to be a, an important thing for us, and it's really something else that can differentiate Tagomi because we're acting as your as your sort of one-stop shop for trading crypto and we handle wallets in custody for you, we can do all of these other neat things for our clients without them having to go uh, and set all this infrastructure up themselves. So then, as we know, Coinbase Custody is uh, launching its staking solution and will also offer governance. So is that the kind of situation where if you have a relationship with Coinbase Custody, you would use their staking service? Or do you plan to also do things like run your own nodes and participate in these networks? Yeah, we'll definitely look for great partners in the space to help us implement these things. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things we're focusing on. Um, so having having lots of different custodians that we can look to that provide these services or other infrastructure providers, uh, you know, are all things that we'll look to, to to do this for our clients. Another trend is decentralized exchanges. Do you ever see Tagomi using those? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's an exciting space for us to look at over the next couple uh, couple months, um, especially as liquidity grows on them. There's lots of other considerations we need to think about, though, for trading on on DEXs. We need to obviously have a great system of of wallets that we can interact with. You know, I'm, I'm excited for additional assets being moved onto things like the Ethereum blockchain. Projects like WBTC or stable coins are all critical to making DEXs uh, an interesting place for us to trade. Um, so we're definitely looking into that. And just so I understand the appeal of using a DEX, because uh, so at the moment they're quite low liquidity, but the appeal would be that then you don't have the risk of losing customer funds. Yeah, that's right. DEXs have a couple features and it's worth breaking them out. One feature is the fact that they're non-custodial and that you generally don't need to give up access to your private keys to trade on them. The other thing that most DEXs have is that they're decentralized in that um, you know they don't necessarily have some some single party who's deciding what can or can't be listed. Um, so it's important when you're looking at DEXs to understand which features are you getting because you know some DEXs out there provide the sort of non-custodial aspect, but they still provide you know some kind of gatekeeper for listings. 
uh, or some kind of KYC. Um, so the term DEX is probably used a little too widely now. Um, so a lot of these are just non-custodial exchanges, but even that's an improvement uh, to not have to worry about the risk of losing your funds or getting hacked. Okay. Yeah. I was just realizing, yeah, in your case, the regulatory issues would also factor in to which exchanges you would use. Yeah, that's right. When we look at exchanges, we, you know, we want to understand, do they do KYC? Do they have a listing policy? Um, so, so DEXs are useful to us because of the non-custodial aspect, but we'll, you know, we, we do to some extent want to understand who are we going to be interacting with. Um, so those are all considerations for trading on DEXs. Um, so we'll look at all those things uh, before we make a choice. Stable coins are another big trend. How might you take advantage of those? Absolutely. We're, we're looking at integrating those into the platform. Uh, we've done some initial testing with that already. Stable coins will be our gateway to certainly to DEXs as well as to, you know, different exchanges around the world. You know, we, we focused on exchanges, like Jen said, that, fo- that do U.S. dollar trading to begin with. And that requires banking relationships and, you know, additional considerations for onboarding. Um, so being able to move into stable coins will open up the places we can trade and, and open up the door to things like DEXs. Because then you don't need only fiat to crypto exchanges. You can use crypto to crypto exchanges? Yep, that's exactly right. You know, a lot of our demand initially was for fiat to crypto. You know, these are institutions that are trying to invest dollars into cryptocurrencies. But over time, as people you know build up those crypto assets, they're going to want to trade them for other crypto assets. And you know, as you know, the, the, the base pair for most altcoins is Bitcoin uh, or, or one of the stable coins. Um, so once you're sort of, you know, part of the crypto ecosystem, you, you're going to be looking for that coin to coin liquidity. Yeah. And I imagine simply for speed, that would be, you know, I, I imagine once people enter your system, they might want to keep their, the US dollar value of their money in, in a digital asset rather than uh, because it's just the, the slowness of the banking system, I th- would imagine would be a disadvantage. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely right. You know, if they're looking to withdraw quickly from our system, you know, stable coins are, are a fast way to do that for sure. We're also working with a lot of great banks, though, that um, provide faster fiat services as well. So I, I expect both both to improve over time. So I'm sure you guys are busy adding new features to Tagomi. What are some of the things that your clients can look forward to in the future? Well, I think shorting margin and lending are things that are definitely on the roadmap. Um, and we're, we hear clients ask us about those things all the time. And so, you know, we're ex- really excited to be building out those features and uh, stay tuned. You know, we'll have some, uh, we'll be adding those features quite quickly in the next year. And for the lending, how would that work exactly? Is that something where you would have other investors provide that capital or? It can happen a couple different ways. Um, you know, there are a lot of great partners out there that we're starting to work with that can either lend us coin so that our clients can short or that we can pledge our clients collateral to to get interest on that. Um, and then over time, as we grow, you know, there's opportunities for us to do that between our own clients as well. Uh, making sure, of course, that we follow all the, the regulations in different states related to that and that the clients understand, you know, exactly what we're doing on their behalf. All right. Well, it's been so great having you on Unchained. Where can people learn more about you and Tagomi? Go to togomi.com and sign up for our product. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Perfect. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Jennifer, Kevin, and Togomi, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. 
If you are not yet signed up for my email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to get my thoughts on the top crypto stories of the week. And be sure to check out our new channel on YouTube. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Gullapalli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening.